following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today's the last Sunday in the series we've been in called The Coming King. And one of the recurring themes in this series as we've looked in Matthew's Gospel at the birth of Jesus, the way that Matthew tells that story, is how Jesus, the birth of Jesus, is part of a much bigger story of salvation. So the Advent story and the nativity scene as we picture it, it's not just a one-off, isolated event. When you look at the nativity set, that's a snapshot of one night. But that scene is part of a much bigger story. And the story stretches not only forwards from Christmas, as that clip brought out, through the life of Jesus and his death and resurrection and so on, that story also stretches back from Christmas backwards, back through the whole history of Israel. And this is the point that the Gospel of Matthew is making time and time again, that Jesus comes as the fulfillment of Israel's story. And Matthew reaches back into the Old Testament continually to show us the way that Jesus has come to sum up and bring to a great crescendo the whole long journey of God's dealings with his people. And that theme is particularly important in this passage we're going to look at this morning. The last passage in this section of Matthew's gospel, the birth narrative, it's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through to 23. And as I read this passage, the words are on screen. Uh, just I want to ask you to listen for echoes of older stories. Uh, listen for any echoes that you can hear of moments from the Old Testament, moments from Israel's story, echoes of something older. Uh, than this particular event, as Matthew tells the story. Some of them are really overt, some of them are much more subtle, but have that in your mind as we read this uh, passage. So, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, that's the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he learned that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this story is not uh, usually one that we associate with the Christmas story itself. 
It happened a, a, a little bit after Jesus was born, probably a few months after Jesus was born, uh, once the Magi had returned home. It could have been up to a year after Jesus was born that all this took place. So we sometimes don't think of this event as part of the Christmas story in the way that we tell it. And you find that it's often particularly excluded from any kids' books about Christmas because this is not a particularly nice story. I mean, you don't see any little preschool pop-up Christmas stories with this brutal scene of Herod committing infanticide at the end of them. It's pretty disturbing for young kids. But interestingly, the one area where this story is really popular is in the world of art. I didn't realize this, but the story has been rich fodder for artists down through the centuries to depict the scene in the life of Jesus in all kinds of ways, all kinds of different depictions. So if you ever see a series of artworks that tell the nativity story, usually this scene is the last one. It's the last piece in the collection. It's often called the escape to Egypt or the flight to Egypt, even though it wasn't a flight, but you know, they, the Jesus' family moved to Egypt and back again, and this is the final depiction in the scene of uh, the whole telling of the nativity story. And there's something in this story that has captivated the imaginations of artists down through the centuries. It's the intrigue, I think, of Jesus spending time in the first couple of years of his life as a political refugee in Egypt. It's not usually the kind of Jesus that we picture. We think a lot about Jesus in the manger, but less about Jesus the baby as a, as a refugee in Egypt. And this awful scene of Herod committing infanticide, wiping out, killing baby boys within Bethlehem. And the desperation of Jesus' parents doing whatever they can possibly do to try and preserve the life of the child. The story itself is just told with such brevity, it's so factual, but you know that there's so much emotion going on in the story. The intensity of emotion that must have been felt by so many families in Bethlehem. In listening to the way Matthew's describing this and some of the Old Testament quotes that he's using, the whole effect would have been to set off all kinds of resonances in their mind of earlier stories in their own history, the history of Israel, all kinds of associations they would have made of really significant times in the history of Israel, all so that they would have had a greater and deeper appreciation of who Jesus was as the fulfillment of that whole story of God's dealings with his people. So as we look at this story, I want to look at these echoes of older stories, these echoes of Israel's story in the story of Jesus' family escape to Egypt. And there's three of them in particular, three echoes that I want to unpack with you this morning. The first of them we hear in the actions of King Herod. King Herod wanted just to assassinate Jesus personally. His main intention is to try and wipe Jesus out. But the Magi, who he was counting on to tell him where Jesus was born, go back to their country by a different route. And so Herod doesn't, uh, isn't able to learn where Jesus was born. So he's furious about this, and he issues a decree that all the baby boys within Bethlehem under two years old are to be killed. It's a hideous act, but as we looked at last week, it's completely in keeping with Herod's character. This is the kind of man that he was. He regularly assassinated people who he perceived to be a threat to his throne. At times, he would associate, uh, assassinate whole groups of people. In fact, this is possibly one of the smaller, if you can believe this, smaller scale assassinations that Herod undertook. Now, the number of baby boys that were probably killed in this was around about 20, 
most scholars believe. It, sometimes we can inflate that number, imagine that it's a lot more, but the population of Bethlehem was probably under 1,000 at the time, so boys under two, year old, two years old, people think maybe 20 to 30. Even though that might be a smaller number than we're used to thinking about, it still is an absolute atrocity for the families that were affected by this infanticide. But here's the echo in the Old Testament. Let me ask you this. Can you think of another king in the Old Testament who undertook infanticide, who issued a decree that baby boys were to be killed? Anyone remember a story like that? Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh in Egypt did a very similar thing. In fact, twice he tried to have the baby boys who were being born of Israelites, who were being born of Hebrews, exterminated because all these Hebrew slaves were becoming too numerous for him. And Pharaoh worried that the slave population might get out of control and the slaves might revolt. And so twice he tried to have the baby boys within Egypt, born of Hebrew women, born of Israelite women, uh, killed. And thankfully those policies didn't work. One of the baby boys who survived that massacre was Moses. And that's the first connection that Matthew is wanting us to make here. This connection between Jesus and Moses. Moses was saved by his mum putting him in that cane basket and sending him down the Nile. Jesus was saved by his family taking off in the middle of the night to Egypt to escape Herod's quest to take Jesus' life. And then later on, you read in Matthew chapter 2 of the angel appearing to Joseph and saying, Get up, now those who are taking, seeking to take your son's life are dead. You can go back to, Egypt, uh, back to Israel. And that wording is almost identical to what God said to Moses when he was in Midian. And God appeared to Moses and said, those who are seeking your life are now dead. You can go back to Egypt. So you have these two stories here that are very connected. Moses escapes from Egypt and then returns back to Egypt. Jesus escapes to Egypt and then returns from Egypt. This place, this country of Egypt that is so significant in the Old Testament to God's people is now having renewed significance in the life of Jesus as a refugee. And this link, this crucial link that Matthew wants us to make and see is that Jesus has come as the new and greater Moses. And Moses, of course, led the Israelites, God's people, through this exodus experience out of slavery in Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the Sinai wilderness, into the promised land. And now the gospel is telling us Jesus has come as the new and greater Moses. He is leading his people out of slavery, out of a spiritual slavery, slavery to ourselves, slavery to sin, slavery to our own selfishness, ultimately slavery to Satan who holds the power of death over our lives. And Jesus draws us out of that slavery and takes us on this new exodus journey through to the new promised land, the space of freedom where we experience the forgiveness of God. That's the wonderful journey Jesus brings us through, bringing us into a place where we have peace with God, life with him in his kingdom, in his dominion, rather than the dominion of darkness. That's the new exodus. And really, the whole gospel of Matthew, really the whole New Testament, is telling the story of that new exodus that Jesus is bringing his people on. And Matthew hints at it right here. Jesus is the new and greater Moses, bringing us, all those who belong to him, on this new and greater exodus journey 
out of Egypt, in a sense, out of our own Egypt, into the promised land where there is life with God. Now, that whole theme is picked up again in a second echo in this passage. And this one is a little bit more overt. It's captured in uh, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew quotes explicitly from the Old Testament, quotes from the book of Jeremiah. And he does this to describe for us the mourning, the grieving that was taking place in Bethlehem over the death of all these baby boys. He reaches back into Jeremiah and quotes from this verse, verse 18, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when you hear that, given how sorrowful that is, given how mournful that verse is, you you might expect it to come from a passage that's full of laments and full of sorrow. But in fact, it's the opposite. That verse comes from Jeremiah 31. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you may know that Jeremiah 31 is one of the great high points in the whole of the Old Testament. It's not a chapter of lament at all. It's a chapter of incredible hope. It's the chapter where we have at the end of that chapter uh, the wonderful promise of God's new covenant that he's going to make with his people, a covenant where he puts his law on their hearts and everyone will know him and won't need to be taught anymore because they'll all know him from the least to the greatest. That's Jeremiah 31. That's where this, this verse comes from. It's a verse, a chapter written in, in Israel's exile. Israel had been carted away from their land, carted away to Babylon. They were strangers in a strange land, dislocated from their home, alienated, they felt, from God, alienated from the temple, which was the center of their worship. And then Jeremiah comes along and just breathes this hope into Israel that there's going to be a returning. There's going to be a homecoming after your captivity. And there'll be rejoicing again in Israel. And he's going to turn your your weeping into laughing. And he's going to console the nation. And he's going to comfort his people Israel. He's going to reestablish them as a light to the world, a city on a hill. He's going to extend his salvation out through these people. It's these wonderful themes of restoration beyond captivity and returning beyond exile. And so what Matthew's doing in picking up this quote in Matthew chapter 2 As he's saying, in some way, the mourning and the grieving of these women, mums and dads in Bethlehem, over the death of their children, it was a bit like Israel's mourning in exile, the pain and the sorrow and the mourning in exile. And yet Jesus, the hope that Jesus brings, is like Israel's return from exile. And the sorrow is eclipsed by the hope that Jesus brings. Just like this verse is an anomaly in a chapter full of, uh, full of celebration. So the sorrow that Israel felt in exile is going to be eclipsed by their return and Matthew is presenting Jesus to us as the great returning from exile. Jesus is like a homecoming, a returning out of captivity, exile, strangers in a strange land, returning to our home returning again to the land. The same kind of theme that we've seen with the new exodus, out of slavery, out of captivity, into freedom, into the new land. It's the same thing with the returning from exile. Israel had returned geographically from exile, 
But now, Matthew is saying, the real spiritual return from exile is happening. Jesus is bringing all of us as captives back home, back to our Father, back into reconciliation with God. We live in this state of exile, in a sense, self-imposed exile, really, because like Israel, we're here because of our own unfaithfulness to God. We're stuck in our own sins. We're alienated from God. But Jesus comes as this great homecoming, the one who leads the captives home, back to that place where we experience renewed embrace of God, renewed connection with God. Jesus is our returning from exile. So what this short passage does is it takes the two great moments of liberation in Israel's story, the Exodus event and the return from exile, and it applies them both to Jesus and says all of these promises are coming true now in Jesus in a new and greater way. Jesus is the true Exodus. And Jesus is the new returning from exile. It reminds me of that line from the carol we just sung, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That really was true. That child born in a stable in Bethlehem summed up and culminated all the hopes that Israel had all through their history. And the great high points of Israel's story are now carried to an even greater height in the coming of the true deliverer and the true return from exile, who is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, add to those two echoes of Israel's story one final one, which I think is the most significant of all three. Have a look in uh, verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew includes another quote from the Old Testament. He's talking about Jesus being taken to Egypt, and he says that this was done, so was fulfilled, what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that seems on the, on the face of it quite straightforward. Jesus is God's son. God called him out of Egypt. But just have a look for a minute at where that quote comes from in the Old Testament. This really is worth turning back to if you've got a Bible. It's from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. It's just the very first verse of Hosea 11. And I want you to just see and notice what this passage is actually talking about in its context. Hosea 11, verse 1, says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, let me ask you this. Where in that verse does it talk about Jesus? Where in that verse does it mention the Messiah? I mean, if Matthew had never quoted it, would you ever read that verse and think, that it was talking about Jesus? Who's, who's Hosea talking about? Who is the son that Hosea, that Hosea is describing here? It's Israel. He's explicit about that. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel is the son. This passage, in fact, looks back to the Exodus again and declares that Israel is the true son of God that God has called out of Egypt. So, that verse is entirely about Israel as the Son of God. What's Matthew doing then, taking that verse about Israel and applying it to Jesus? Did he not understand what Hosea was saying? Has he misread his Old Testament? No, I think Matthew knows exactly what Hosea was saying. And by including this quote here and applying it to Jesus as he's doing, Matthew is making an extraordinary statement about Jesus. 
He is saying that Jesus is Israel. In a profound theological sense, Jesus is Israel. He is the embodiment of a nation. He is the personification of the whole nation of Israel. Just as Israel was the son of God, now Jesus is the true son The summing up of everything Israel was. So that to see Jesus walking around, living, teaching and talking, what you're seeing is the whole nation in one man. You are seeing Jesus as the very expression, the very embodiment of Israel. That's what Matthew's saying. By describing Jesus with these words that were obviously used to describe Israel. He's saying, The the true Israel is here. Not just that Jesus was an Israelite, not just that he kept the law, but that he within his own self, within his own body, is the very expression and the embodiment of the whole nation of Israel. He is now the son that Israel has been to God. Now the implications of this for us are huge. Because if Jesus is Israel, If he is the embodiment of Israel, then all of us who become united to Jesus are drawn into true spiritual Israel. We become part of the identity of God's people. We become part of the people of God in and through Jesus. This is what Jesus is doing through his life, through his ministry, is he's redefining the boundaries of who true spiritual Israel is around himself. He's reconfiguring the people of God so that now those who are true spiritual Israel in the fullest and deepest sense are those who are united to Jesus. It doesn't mean when we become Christians that we become Jewish. It doesn't mean that we join the Israeli state. It means that we are united to Jesus and in being united to him, we become part of true spiritual Israel. Physical Israel, of course, still exists as a nation. But true spiritual Israel is made up of Jesus at its center. And then, by extension, all those who are grafted in, as Paul describes it, grafted in to the people of God. And that's all of those of us who are not Jewish, but who love Jesus. We are grafted in to the people of God, invited into this incredible community, in and through the Messiah, Jesus. That's the unspeakable privilege that we have. Paul expresses this really well in Romans chapter 9. Verse 6, where he says, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. It is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. In other words, you may not be Jewish, but if you love Jesus, you're a child of the promise and you're a child of Abraham. And conversely, you may be Jewish, and yet if you don't love and follow Jesus, you're not part of true spiritual Israel in this sense. True spiritual Israel has Jesus at its very center as the Son, and then all those of us who love and follow him. One of the songs that uh, Anna and I sometimes sing Josh when he's going to bed is Father Abraham has many sons. Anyone know that one? It's a goodie. It gets him far too hyped up at bedtime because you're waving his arms and his legs around madly. 
But the theology is fantastic. If you, if you sing that song with your kids, you are teaching them wonderful theology. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. What are we saying by that? We are sons of Abraham if we're children of the promise, if we're united to Jesus. We are true sons of Abraham. It may not be biological descendants, but because Jesus is the embodiment of Israel, we are sons and daughters of Abraham because we are connected to Jesus. And what that means is that Israel's story is now our story. We must never forget that it's an incredible privilege to be grafted into Israel's story. We don't take it over and control it, but we are grafted in as those who are privileged now to become part of the story. This is our story. This incredible journey of God's people that stretches back 2,000 years from Christmas to the call of Abraham, and it stretches forward 2,000 years from Christmas to our day. It's our story now. That's, we're part of it. And so if we love Jesus, the new exodus is our exodus. Israel's return from exile, it's our return from exile. And Jesus opens to us, incredibly, the doors to the very people of God, that we may come in and become part of true spiritual Israel through Him, in Him, by being united to Him. That's the big story of Christmas. That's what we're called to celebrate at Christmas, not the snapshot of one night in Bethlehem, but the whole story of salvation stretching backwards and forwards. That's what we're called to keep in our hearts and minds. That's what we're called to celebrate. That's what we're called to pass on through the generations. That story is our story because of Jesus. Now, it's not always easy to pass that story on. It's not always easy to focus on that story at Christmas because there are so many other stories that compete for our attention. And, and that vie for our time and our energy and our effort at Christmas. And that story of the coming of Christ, the whole big story of God's salvation, it can so easily be crowded out by other stories that can speak much more loudly at this time of year. I was singing some songs with Josh the other night, and uh, we were just going through a bit of a Christmas medley. One of the songs that we sang was uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And we sung away and finished the song. And then Josh asked me, how does Santa know when I'm sleeping? Because you know how that line in that song goes? He, knows, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So Josh wanted to know, well, how does Santa see me when I'm sleeping? And it, it, I didn't have much of an answer for that, by the way. I fumbled through something. But it just made me think, you know, sometimes the things that we say about Santa and the things that we sing about Santa, they can make Santa seem a bit like someone else we know. So God, you know, Santa is somehow omnipresent. He's able to be in every shopping mall at once. You know, Santa is omnipotent. He's got the power to make every child's dreams come true. He's omniscient. He knows if you've been sleeping, naughty, nice, good, bad, awake. He seems to be a lot like God in some ways. Now, I'm not anti-Santa. I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think Santa is Satan spelt differently. I think he's fine. In and of himself, Santa's okay. But I just speak honestly, I just speak for myself and say, I, in, in, in recent Christmases, I think for me, as I've journeyed through it with Josh and we've talked and we've sung, I think I've probably played up the Santa story a bit too much and underemphasized the Jesus story, to be honest. I'm not proud of it, but I think that's just how it's gone. And it's because the Santa story is everywhere. I mean, that's what he's seeing when he walks through the mall. 
He's not, sitting, he's not seeing Jesus sitting there. He's seeing Santa sitting there waiting to have a kid sit on his knee. The, the Santa story is everywhere. And I, if we're going to elevate this biblical story, then it's going to be harder work. We're going to have to be more intentional about it because it's not the story that our culture holds on to. And I want to become more intentional about helping my kids immerse themselves in the Jesus story and the whole big continuous story of salvation at Christmas time. Not to exclude all these other stories, I don't think you need to go that far, but to elevate the Christ story. That's the task, and it's not going to happen without some real intentional focus. I want Josh to go to bed on Christmas Eve thinking about Jesus rather than Santa. I don't know if that's even possible, but that's what I would like. And so it's making me more conscious of the songs that we sing. Last night we sung the one that we started with today, Mary's Boy Child. And so then that generated different questions from him. Like, what does it mean that man shall live forevermore? That was a good question. That got us going. And we talked about, you know, eternal life. And we got right through to new creation. It was wonderful. We're talking about the whole big story right there. I want to be more intentional about that. I want to try and help him connect the Christmas story to the other stories of Scripture. And the Jesus Storybook Bible is great on this. If you haven't got a copy of that, uh, order one. Jesus Storybook Bible. When it tells the story of the Exodus, when it tells the story of the returning from exile, it points you forward to Jesus. gives you hints of the way that Jesus is going to come as the fulfillment of this. The new Exodus, the new Deliverer will come. There's another homecoming on its way. It's just great ways of helping our kids see the whole story as one story. And all the little stories within the Bible as connected around the person of Jesus. But of course, this is not just for those of us who have young kids. This is for all of us. I, I really urge you to see and celebrate the nativity story as part of the big story of salvation. And to see it as part of this continuous ongoing drama. Here's one practical thing that you can do. You've still got two days before Christmas, right? So here's one thing. Over the next two days, Monday, Tuesday... Decide that you will carve out some time to read Scripture. Decide. I mean, you're going to have to decide today because you are going to be busy over the next two days. Unless you think about it and put some time aside, it's not going to happen. But decide that you're going to sit down and read Scripture as a way of focusing your heart and mind around Christ. So on Monday tomorrow, read the story of the Exodus. Exodus 12 and 13. Read that story. It might not sound like it's got anything to do with Christmas. Just read that story. And then on Tuesday, read the story of the return from exile. Read Ezra chapter 1 and how Ezra leads the captives home. And then sometime on Christmas Day, read the nativity story itself from Matthew's gospel or Luke's gospel. Find the time, find a way somehow in that day, either by yourself or with other people, to sit with the story of Scripture and read it together. And just allow the story to work away on you and allow yourself to hear all those echoes of the stories that you've read the past two days all coming together around the person of Jesus, that he is the fulfillment of that exodus, that he is the fulfillment of that return from exile and he represents the very uh, person and presence of God, the true and new Israel for us. Allow yourself just to percolate away on all those wonderful echoes of Scripture and as you sit with that nativity story, I would encourage you not only to think about Jesus, the baby in the manger, but also Jesus, the child in Egypt. Let that image sit with you over these next few days. Jesus, 
the child refugee in Egypt, with all that that means for us. In that country, so important in the Old Testament, a place that God drew his people out of through Moses. And allow yourself to be reminded of the way that Jesus has drawn us out of our old life, out of slavery, out of slavery just to ourselves and our fear and our guilt and our condemnation, and into this place of freedom, into grace, into forgiveness, into life with God. Allow that image to capture your mind and heart, and let's celebrate together the big story of the gospel, the big story of Christmas in this coming week. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that when you sent your son to earth, when he was born that night, it was the culmination of thousands of years in which you'd been preparing a people from which the Messiah could come. We thank you for the incredible way that you have orchestrated history, put this whole story together, and centered it around your son, Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that over these next few days, in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of the fun and the family and the food, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the whole story of salvation that he is at the center of. God, help us here and now to refuse to allow the stories of our culture to crowd out the story of your son, to refuse to allow other voices to scream louder, but help us to enter this week with our hearts and minds where they should be, focused on you, focused on your coming into this world, focused on the wonderful promise that one day you'll come again in glory. And God, help us to keep Jesus central in our hearts and minds and souls as we journey through these next few days. We thank you for Jesus, for the life that he has brought to us and the fulfillment he brings of many promises over many, many years that you have made to your people. Thank you that we receive those now. We're the beneficiaries of all those wonderful promises of life and hope and salvation and blessing in and through Christ. That's what we celebrate because of your son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.